to Bookends, a virtual book club brought to you by the Team Approach. This year on Bookends, we are featuring books that transform, and today we will visit with Dick Axelrod, who has written Terms of Engagement, New Ways of Leading and Changing Organizations. To obtain a copy of today's featured book, you can visit www.bkconnection.com. You can access today's recording and all of our Bookends programs at bookendsbookclub.net. Be sure to visit our resource blog for free chapters and other resources provided by authors featured on this program. After reading Dick's book, you might want to discuss it, and we have created a place for you to do this. Simply sign into LinkedIn, search groups, and join the group called Bookends the Discussion. In this LinkedIn group, you can pose questions and discuss issues with your peers. You can dialogue with our bookends featured authors who are members of this group. Be sure to invite your friends to join the group and listen and discuss with you. I'm Susan Stam, and I'd like to introduce Dick Axelrod, who is a co-founder of and principal in the Axelrod Group Incorporated, a consulting firm that pioneered the use of employee involvement to affect large-scale organizational change. Raised in Chicago, he received his bachelor's degree in industrial management from Purdue University and his master's degree in business administration from the University of Chicago. Before forming the Axelrod Group, Dick was an organizational development manager at General Foods, which was the first company in America to use self-directed work teams, a strategy whose philosophy made a great impact on the young manager. He is the author of Terms of Engagement, New Ways of Leading and Changing Organizations, and co-author of You Don't Have to Do It Alone. He is also the contributing author to many other books. Additionally, Dick is the 2010 Organizational Development Network's Lifetime Achievement Award winner. And Dick, I'd like to congratulate you on that great and well-deserved honor and welcome you back to Bookends. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Dick, we hear lots about numbers when the topic of employee engagement comes up. Can you help us to understand or quantify the impact of employee engagement on our organizations? Yes, there's lots of good research, and let's start with Gallup. Gallup estimated that disengaged employees uh, cost the economy about $300 billion a year. And then there's ISR, Chicago-based consulting firm, and they estimate that engaged organizations are 52% more profitable than their disengaged counterparts. Mm. That's pretty significant, something that we need to pay attention to for sure. You know, I, as I was reading the book, I have to tell you that I had to chuckle a little bit because in the beginning part of the book is your positioning, um, your work and your approach. Uh, you talk about and you, you call what you call the old change management. And uh, the reason I had to chuckle is because I'm currently involved in ASTD's Certified Professional and Learning Performance um, Certification Process, and uh, they are actually teaching <laughs> what you refer to as the old approach. Um, I thought you should know that. Maybe you're aware of that. Um, would you describe the characteristics of the old approach for us, I want to make sure that I get it correct on the test, and tell us a little bit about why this approach is so flawed. Well, the old approach is well is well entrenched, and what you'll see in almost any major corporation is, um, you know, you have a leader who will identify a problem, they'll go off, they'll hire a consulting firm, and then they'll try and sell their solution to the rest of the organization. Uh, there's a kinder, gentler model of this where um, 
you know, the leader hires the consulting firm. Uh, the consulting firm works with teams or groups in the organization and then tries to sell the solution. So what you have here is essentially the few deciding for the many. And what this does is it creates an engagement gap between those who want change to happen and those who are impacted. So while all these folks are working on change, people on the outside of the change process are wondering about what, what are they going to do to us so that, in a way, there's a way in which the change process creates its own resistance. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the people on the outside want change, too. If they could just be included somehow, um, I, I would sense that, um, you know, that they are very much interested in making things better also. To, to, to further demonstrate the flaws in the what you call the old approach, um, you uh, share, uh, you know, a, I thought a really powerful little exercise. You call it how to structure failure. And uh, this appears in the first chapter of the book. Could you tell us a little bit about how this has played out when you have used this exercise with organizations? Yeah, it's a really fun exercise. Um, you create two groups. One are the planners and the others are called the implementers. And uh, the planner's job is to figure out how to get the implementers to put together a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And what typically happens is that the planners uh, meet and they they usually they have 20 minutes and they usually use that whole time to figure out their plan and then they um, give their plan of instructions to the implementer group and the implementing group rarely finishes uh, you know they, they have another 20 minute time period in which to implement the uh, the design uh, what you see once in a while is a planning group that invites the implementing group into their discussions. Hmm. When that happens, uh, the implementing group usually is able to put the puzzle together within about five minutes. So, uh, you know, there's a quick demonstration there about how important it is for people who are essentially going to be implementing a solution or a plan or an idea to be involved in the development of the plan. It's such a powerful uh, exercise and a powerful illustration of um, what you're what you're describing in the book. Uh, finally, before we move on to what you call the new approach, um, just in case there's still any unbelievers out there, do you have any illustrations of a change that was really a, a win-win for everybody that would have been involved? But even so, it, it failed miserably because the old change management tactics were employed. Mm-hmm. I have a, have a couple. One was an organization that was in, uh, going to put in a new supply chain process. So in, in the supply chain process, you had uh, productivity improvements. You had new ways of working. Uh, they were going to put in some uh, team-based kind of uh, organization. So you had a lot of things going that would uh, benefit the company, benefit people in the company. Um, and they worked, uh, you know, kind of using the old change management. You had a uh, consulting firm, and they had some, uh, teams working off to the side, and uh, two years later they had nothing to show for it because um, they could never get it implemented because what was happening was while these groups were working, there was so much resistance uh, and you know rumors and fear building up in the organization that uh, it was pretty hard to get anything implemented in into the organization. Um, it, it's interesting, uh, Michael Beer has a book uh, called Breaking the Code of Change, and in it he cites that two-thirds of all change efforts fail to reach their stated goals, yet we continue to use the same old process. 
that is uh, two thirds, and right. and and uh, you can see how hard it is for us to let go of this when you know ASTD is still right. right. Uh, it's uh, not not very uh, not a, not a good thing when the, the people who are the practitioners of of this are are still being taught the old approach. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so. I think it's so part of. It's like efficient water it's so part of what's accepted practice and what we mm-hmm. uh that no one even thinks twice about it yeah well it 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 kind of is so much more um comfortable in more of the industrial approach to management and you know the more the um you know the old approach and the old uh way of doing things within organizations it's much more of a of a comfortable fit within those kinds of philosophies i think mm-hmm. so hopefully we're we're starting to see some some transition there um could you give us a brief overview of the four principles that distinguish what you call the new change management from the old okay so uh there's four things we think about um the first is you want to widen the circle of involvement. You want to include people, uh, people with information, people with authority, people who think differently. Um, because if you've got the same people uh, working on the same problems, you're going to get the same solutions. So we want, to, we want to expand that a little bit. And so once you get that group together, then you want to build some relationships. You want to connect people to each other and to the task. That's the second principle. Then the third principle is create communities for action because, you know, it's one thing to widen the circle. It's another thing to build connection. But in the end, what you need to do is you need to act. So the third principle is about um, really building a group of people that have both the will and the willingness to get something to done. And then the last one is what we call promote fairness. And um, it's interesting. We have a, a built-in fairness direct detector. Mm-hmm. And things aren't fair. Uh, we don't like it, and so it's pretty hard to uh, institute change in an organization when people feel like there's a lot of unfairness going on. So those, those are the four principles, widening the circle of involvement, connecting people to each other and to the task, creating communities for action, and promoting fairness. Yeah, and they're great, and, and you know, just sounds like common sense kinds of things that you know it, when you hear them, you think, yeah, well, of course, that's that's what that's what I would want. So why wouldn't anybody working in my organization want the same thing? Exactly. Um, yeah. And I think that's why people take to them, and they are you know they are common sense, and it also takes some work to make them happen. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, many people, you know, even so, uh, you know, that they are common sense and, and, and we all agree that that's what we would want. Uh, it still seems to me that when you think about people who are running organizations, um, you know, that they might feel the energy required, as you said, it, they don't happen, you know, just all alone. It, it takes a lot of energy and, and time and expense, you know, getting all of these different people involved um, to, to do the new change management. And, and I think that perhaps maybe there might be some pushback from time to time with, with leaders as they look at the new approach, um, you know, who might even wonder why just, you know, why can't a few smart people just get together in a room somewhere and just get it done? Uh, how would you respond to concerns such as these? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the seduction that uh, why don't we just get a few smart people in the room and they'll, and they'll come up with, the, you know, the right answer. Um, the problem is you still have, even if they get the right answer, which um, may or may not be possible. Uh, you still have the uh, issue of 
how do you implement it? Do you have enough support to implement it? Um, but I, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating involving everyone on every mm-hmm. issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to think carefully about your approach and uh, really say, when does it make sense to widen the circle? When does it make sense to get more voices in the room? Um, mm-hmm. Because I think what we see in some organizations today is sort of an overuse of that. So you have these meetings where, you know, you got a lot of people in the room and people are wondering why they're there. Right. So, um, you know, you have to, I would say you widen the circle with some thought and you do it carefully. Uh, but when when you do, um, you get two benefits. One, um, which I think is the most overlooked benefit, is you get better answers because if you widen the circle and have diversity of thought and opinion in there, that pushing up against each other usually creates a better answer. And then, two, you've got the commitment to then implement it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Well, as you've been indicating, another practice in, in the new change approach uh, is to involve all of these different people, which includes, um, as you uh, indicate in your book, the stakeholders. Um, and uh, I'm wondering if you, um, as, we're, as you're doing work with your, your clients, do you ever experience some pushback as, you know, you're suggesting that they're, you know, going to be inviting their customers into the room um, where, you know, they're going to be talking about their dirty laundry, and I'm sure some of the issues that they're going to be talking about probably might even have a direct impact on that customer. Um, could you could you describe a little bit about, uh, you know, how you, um, you know, work with organizations to get them to understand the value of this, and what tell us a little bit about what the customer's role might be in the process. Okay. So let's uh, first, let's talk about the dirty laundry. Uh, the customers are living in the dirty laundry anyway, so it, like, this is not new news to them. Um, but customers, you know, it, you know, sometimes there's an initial reluctance, and um, but oftentimes people get over it pretty quickly because uh, customers are a powerful influence. Uh, they tell their stories, and people listen. And for uh, many times, it's um, one of the few times they have a direct uh, contact with the customers. They, their role is really to provide a reality that people don't often experience. And uh, for many times, it's the first time they've ever heard from the customer or received direct feedback from the customer. We've had uh, patients and their families in hospitals talking about their experience. We've had uh, people in telephone talking about their experience. We've had people in banking and automotive. Uh, so when you hear the voice of the customer, um, that it does, you know, besides getting the information, it helps put a customer focus on what you're doing because they're they're live and they're present uh, in in what you're doing. Yeah, I often think about uh, there's a, a little deli uh, close to to where we uh, work and live, and um, every time that I've gone in there for oh gosh. 10 years or more, I've asked for green tea, and they only ever have one kind of green tea. It's mint, and I don't like mint tea. (laughs) And every time for 10 years, I say, could you please let someone know? Right, right. <laughs> that, that, you know, your customers today, I mean, a lot of people drink green tea. And, and I mean, it's a really great place to go with the, that one exception. And, um, you know, it just, it's, I think the customer loves having the opportunity to have a voice. And as you say, they, they are experienced, they are the recipient of the things that are not working as well as they could. Right, and there's, and there's often an unintended consequence of this, in that um, the customer, you know, if they're in there with you and helping you to uh, 
work on some of these issues, uh, they become connected to the organization in a different kind of way. So mm-hmm. they become, uh, you know, uh, spokespeople, uh, your advocates, uh, and also committed to the kind of changes that you're trying to introduce. So that's an unintended kind of consequence from this. You, you get better relationships with your customers. Yeah, I would agree. Well, you make a point in the book that the, the four principles are a great place to start, but alone they're really not sufficient to bring uh, the change that's desired uh, for the organization. And you introduce three leadership practices, which are honesty, transparency, and trust. Of course, transparency is required to have that relationship with the customer we've been talking about. Can you share uh, an example or two of the power of these uh, character traits when they're fully executed by leaders? Mm-hmm. Uh, just a little history on these traits. They came from uh, interviewing leaders who felt like, uh, you know, who had actually been very successful um, in creating transformations in their organization. And what was striking about it, uh, the interviews, was that they all felt an obligation to behave this way. So it was almost like a personal commitment to be honest, to be transparent, and to be trust, you know, not just to be uh, trustworthy, but to mm-hmm. also to trust their organization. So um, that was sort of interesting when I talked to people. I'll give you a couple of examples. One um, from the book is Henry Lipmanowitz, who was um, CEO of Merck Asia. And, you know, uh, there's a budgeting game that's played in every organization. And, uh, you know, you submit a budget that's higher than what you think it should be, and then your boss cuts it down. And, you know, eventually you both end up at the budget that you think it should be in the first place. Well, Henry said he was going to stop the game. And what he wanted was honest budgets. And so what what happened was that over a process of three years, the whole budgeting process became transparent with the aid of uh, some software. But everybody could see and understand what other people's budgets were and what the implications of that were. And so in the end, uh, their budgeting uh, meetings took about 15 minutes. And uh, what happened then was, you know, in the what happens in most organizations is there's a point in the year when your boss says, you know, it's we're having a tough year and I need more money. And so Henry would just say, okay, we need to come up with X amount of dollars for uh, the rest of the corporation. It wasn't one of these, you know, 5 or 10% uh, across mm-hmm. the board cuts. And um, people would uh, people would come up with the money and would look at it as what was best for um, – this organization as opposed to what was best for the individual units. Yeah. So it was, um, you know, see, so there you have honesty, you have transparency, and then the trust part was Henry said, you know, once once I got the system working, if I told people that I trusted their numbers, I couldn't go back on that. So that's, that's um, sort of it at a global level. Um, the interesting, another interesting one at sort of a everyday level was um, I interviewed a a checkout clerk at Best Buy, and I said to her, well, what's it like to work here? And she said, well, I love this place. And I said, well, why do you love this place? And she said, well, they trust me to make decisions here. And I've worked in retail a lot all my life. I've worked for other employees. And here I get to make the decision where at other employers I have to call my boss, and my boss would then okay what I was going to do in the first place. So 
I think those are just some some quick examples of how these play out. And there's such great examples. And in that second one, you know, you just picture how that employee feels when someone makes the same decision that they wanted to make themselves, but someone has to put their stamp of approval on it. And we can't trust people. Right. And, 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 and the opportunity loss, you know, in the, the first example, uh, I think is such a powerful illustration when we're playing those kinds of games and so many organizations play games like that. Um, you know, the time involved and, and the opportunity loss that that represents for the organization that we could all be doing other things rather than playing that game. Exactly, exactly. But, it, you know, it takes some courage on a leader's part to really uh, stand up for these things and then uh, follow through on them. And I think that that's an important characteristic as well. Yeah. Well, I'd like to read uh, a, a very short passage from uh, page 61 in the book where you're quoting uh, Hogan, who said, a review of workplace climate survey literature reveals a very interesting generalization. It does not matter when the study was done. It does not matter where the study was done. It does not matter which occupational group is studied. The results are always the same. About 75% of the work, workforce will say that the single worst aspect of their job, the most stressful aspect of their job, is their immediate supervisor. And this is kind of a disturbing quote, um, but I think a true quote. Uh, in the book, you describe how leaders use the lowest cost, lowest tech opportunity to turn this problem around, which, of course, is daily contact. Could you tell us a little bit about what you refer to as the four conversations? So, you know, when, when you're a supervisor, you are the window um, to the corporation for whoever you're working with. And so I think this, uh, what Hogan's finding is really important. And so we came up with, uh, in some work at Boeing, we came up with uh, four conversations that we think um, really make a difference. And the first conversation is what's important to you at work and why? So this is a conversation that leaders have with their employees. Uh, it's interesting. We we do a practice session of, of this conversation in our workshops, and we give people um, four minutes to discuss what's important to you at work and why with their partner, and then you uh, let the other person talk about what's important to uh, them at work and why. And it's interesting, in these four-minute conversations, when we ask people what was the experience of that conversation, they say they were energized, they were engaged, they felt closer to the other person. So. Uh, this is sort of our answer to, um, you know, we don't have time for engagement when you can uh, create those kind of responses within within four, four minutes. So the first step is what's important to you at work and why. Then the second conversation with the leader is uh, how can we get more of what's important to you at work and why? What, what, how can we get more of what's important to you at work in the workplace? Um, and most people are afraid that, or most supervisors are afraid that this conversation is going to be, uh, well, I want a promotion or I need a salary increase. But even if that's true, um, which we didn't find was true, but even if it were true, um, that leads to another conversation about, okay, you want a salary increase? What do we need to do to help you get that? Uh, mm -hmm. Want a promotion? What's, what are the steps that we have to have so that you can get that promotion? And also to be realistic about those things. Um, but in actuality, um, what most people uh, wanted or want is to learn and grow on the job. Okay. Yeah. That, that was usually number one. And um, 
So um, you you take what's uh, important to the other to the employee. You figure out how to bring that um, that into the workplace. So you create a plan for that. Um, the third conversation is as a leader sharing what's important to you. This is the other side of the conversation. So you talk about what's important to you. Um, and oftentimes leaders, when they're talking about change, will talk about it in terms of why it's good for the company or the organization. Or, um, and it gets to be management speak. And what happens is people start to tune out. But if I can talk um, and share why I'm willing to put my own time and energy behind what needs to be done, uh, that is often very engaging for people. And so that's the third conversation as a leader, sharing what's important to you. And then the last is um, to reframe how we think about meetings, because from our standpoint, meetings are the, um, the most effective, fast-track engagement opportunity there is, uh, because it's in meetings where people decide whether they're going to sit on their hands or whether they're going to get behind what needs to be done. But, you know, in our rush and going from meetings to meetings, we just often think about meetings as uh, something that just happens. So paying attention to meetings, paying attention to how they're construction constructed. And I'm not talking here just about agendas. I'm talking about the types and quality and kinds of conversations that occur within the meeting. So there's the four, you know, what what's important to you at work and why? How do we make more of what's important to you present in the workplace as a leader sharing what's important uh, to you as the leader, and then the last one is treating meetings as engagement opportunities. And they're really great, and I, and I look forward to talking a little bit more about those. Um, let, let's come back, though, to the first principle, which is to widen the circle of involvement. And one of the, the techniques that you talk about in the book is something that you refer to as a collaborative loop. Can you tell us a little bit about how this works and share uh, the impact of this um, process on Frazier's Health Child Initiative team? Okay. So um, in collaborative loops, um, we bring together teams in the corporation or in the organization that are tasked with bringing about some kind of change because um, it's not unusual in organizations today to have many different change efforts coming together. So we would um, bring these essentially steering teams uh, together in a workshop setting. We teach them the principles that I've identified uh, in our talk today, and then they would go ahead and design their own change process based on uh, the principles. So in this collaborative loop, we happen to have the um, Child Health Initiative team. This was at uh, Fraser Health Authority up in uh, British Columbia, and we also had a group from IT, and we um, we also had that was uh, instituting a change project, and we also had another group that was uh, looking at um, hip surgery and how to speed up hip, you know, speed up hip, hip surgery, uh, essentially reducing the length of stay in the hospital. And uh, so part of the process is these teams come together and they give each other feedback. And what, one of the things the Child Health Initiative was looking at was um, to have a kind of library and center where um, parents could bring their kids in and get help with uh, you know, immunizations and uh, other health-related, kind of a clinic, uh, but also uh, in terms of uh, uh, preventive kinds of uh, things. And part of the feedback they, 
they got was, uh, why are you going to build a building? You know, a building is going to cost you lots of money. It's in uh, one place. Uh, people have to come to that. What if you um, took a bus and refitted a bus and took that out into the neighborhood? So um, it was in that feedback in the collaborative loop that they began to change their, their process. Uh, in another organization, which was banking, we had a banking, uh, this is a public collaborative loop, so we had a banking organization and we had a railroad signal company. And the bank was used to, in those days, was used to having lots of money to work with, and the railroad signal company uh, didn't have a lot of money to work with. So um, the railroad signal company showed the bank how to save money and what they were doing and not be so extravagant. And the uh, bank team showed the railway signal company to think more systemically. So it's in this um, kind of feedback that teams give each other that new solutions and new ways of working begin to arise. The, se- the second principle is all about connecting people to each other, which can be surprisingly challenging for many organizations that have a history of mistrust and um, you know other challenges that just sort of keep people uh, separate and detached. One of the tools that you discuss to help organizations, and I love this tool, is storytelling. You credit Howard Gardner uh, for suggesting that organizational change is a process of shifting the the story uh, that the organization has about itself. Uh, uh, to shift the current story, however, you first have to understand the story that's in place and how it came to be, according to Gardner. Uh, I think this is a really big idea that he's uh, talking about here. Could you share an example of how you've used this to help organizations make that shift? Mm -hmm. Um, One way to get the current story is something that we do where we um, call it the first day on the job, and uh, we actually have people depending on the group, but we we have people, we have the oldest employee start, okay? And they they talk about what it's like, what it was like the first day that they uh, came to work. Mm. And then by seniority, the next one, and then the next one, and then the next one, till the last uh, person in the room, uh, tell, you know, might be, I mean, I'm thinking of one example where uh, this person had been on the job two days. So in that storytelling of the history of what what the first day on the job was like uh, through all these different lenses, you get sort of a history of the organization, and you begin to find out why certain things are the way they are that you never knew in this process of storytelling. So that's one way where we get the current story. And then together we then build the story of what we'd like the organization to be in the future. Mm-hmm. So it's this notion of current story and then future story. That's great. I think it's a, a powerful tool. The third principle in the model is is to create communities for action. And uh, this offers seven different strategies to help organizations fully engage the, in this principle. My favorite uh, is the first one, which is to create a compelling purpose. Um, would you talk a little bit about how this might differ from a statement of purpose, and could you give us some examples? Yeah. Um, well, you know, we, we've all seen statement of pur- you know, purpose statements that are on the walls and plaques, and they, you know, often sign you know, they're in sort of silent testimony to what didn't happen. Um, so it's, um, you know, some some purpose statements when they're written are better than others. Um, but this isn't about writing um, that makes the purpose statement compelling. 
It's what the organization does with their purpose statement and how they make it come alive that really makes it compelling. So, um, you know, Cirque du Soleil talks about producing the best shows in the world while being the neighbor and employer of choice and making the world a better place. Well, okay, that sounds very nice, all right? And then you go on to find out that what Cirque du Soleil does is give 1% of their top-line revenue uh, to charity. Okay, not, not profit, top-line revenue. Yeah. Um, and they were, uh, Cirque was founded by street people, and so they know that if they're not accepted in the communities that they work in, that uh, they're not going to, uh, street, street performers don't survive. So they always work to give back to the communities uh, that they're doing by uh, having workshops and training uh, youngsters in uh, gymnastics, not in terms of looking for the next performer, okay, but to help kids with um, uh, building their self-esteem. So that's, that's, that's one idea of purpose. Um, Barrett Kohler, our publisher, uh, talks about creating a world that works for all. Now, you start to see that in almost everything that Barrett Kohler does. Uh, They publish um, the fact that they have authors on uh, and all their stakeholders represented on their um, board of directors. Uh, One of the stories I talk about in the book is about how Barrett Kohler handled the recent economic downturn when um, and what they did was, which they've been doing all along, was they uh, shared their financials with everybody, and together the staff decided what they were going to do. And as a result, uh, all the senior people, you know, took salary cuts and forego bonuses. The rest of the uh, staff uh, took a salary cut. But uh, as a group, they decided that the lowest paid employees would not have to take a cut. And so last year, publishing, you know, was not a good year for publishing, but at the end of the year, Boyer Kohler was profitable, and this year, they're restoring those salary levels uh, to people in the organization. So it, you know, I, yes, you have to have a good purpose statement, all right? Yeah. Uh, but it's how you live it out. And uh, there were a couple of people, uh, David Rock, who's uh, uh, done a lot of writing on neuroscience and uh, Soji Shiba, who's winner of the MIT Deming Prize, and they both talk about that organizations that are committed to improving the world achieve more than those whose purpose is just to beat the competition. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, and, um, they talk about it as a noble purpose or a purpose that contributes to society. So you got to figure that out within your organization and then make it come alive. And I think, you know, the real key here is, and that you've just uh, indicated is how this is lived out. It's not just creating that statement because that's the thing to do today and, you know, the new kind of economy, you know, where we're um, social, uh, preneurial organizations and, uh, you know, moving into into that new way of doing business um, just because it's the thing to do. Right, <laughs> it, exactly. it, it, And I think, um, you know, your example of how this was demonstrated, the two organizations that you just spoke of, and I love, uh, you know, hearing about BK and, uh, you know, the the folks of, you know, the lowest paid or folks in the organization, you know, not um, putting them at greater risk and, and um, you know, or the recognition that, that it's hard for them and um, and that their salary shouldn't be touched. I just thought that was just a, a shining example of them living out what they were talking about. Yeah, I think it's a great example of how purpose and then the principle of promoting fairness come together. Yeah. 
It sure is. Well, I was uh, surprised to see your advice at the end of this chapter that was establishing community boundaries creates freedom. When you you know first read that or hear that, it kind of doesn't seem to to jive real well. Could you could you explain this uh, this tip to us and help us uh, understand how boundaries could create freedom? Yeah, uh, boundaries create freedom because they give you structure, um, mm-hmm. and so if if you think about it like in terms of a, a fence in your backyard, uh, so if your fence is um, too too tight, you've got no room to play. Okay, and if your fence is the neighborhood, then you you go all over the place. Okay, and um, you know, uh, and it, it, is your fence a solid fence or is it an open fence that you can see through? So the trick with boundaries is to make them um, sort of loose enough that you can say, well, okay, I know that within this area we can get something done, and this is what we want to focus our energy, um, and not so tight that uh, it feels like everything's been decided. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think it's sort of paradoxical, but having a clear set of boundaries about what you're about um, really gives you freedom to uh, focus your energy. An example I often use is um, you take human re- human resources as an organization and you say that um, the boundary of human resources is anything that has to do with people. Well, then you have human resources organizations doing benefits, doing payroll, mm-hmm. worrying about the parking lot, all those sorts of things. Okay. Uh, if you say the purpose of human resources is to um, help you know, foster and create change in an organization, okay, then you have a very different kind of boundary and you really know where to focus. So um, it, it is paradoxical, but I think it works. Yeah, yeah, that, uh, it's an interesting idea and it was the first that I had encountered it expressed that way and I was uh, kind of intrigued by that. Before we wrap up our, our time with you today, Dick, can you share with us your secrets, and they won't be secrets any longer, uh, for how we can design work with engagement built into it? Um, these are really great, and I especially loved the third one uh, in the book. Could you, could okay, you talk so, us mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the third one was, um, the, there's four, but we'll start with the third one. Uh, the third one was construct your own scorecard, and um, you know, engagement occurs in work when you know how well you're doing. And so a simple example of that is the uh, spell checker on your computer. Um, you know, it, it, it's a new, what's called a neutral feedback device. You get instantaneous feedback about what you're doing, how well, you know, the word's misspelled. It just says it's misspelled. It doesn't say dummy. It doesn't say maybe there are maybe there are spell checkers out there that do that. But but you're just getting information about how well you're doing. And uh, you're you know, not the only one that's getting that information. It's being right. applied fairly and you know uh, unilaterally. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And I know in um, in writing um, uh, terms of engagement, you know, we were worried about word counts for chapters. We were worried about uh, mm-hmm. voice. We was worried about. Um, you know, the grade level at which it was written so that it would get to the right, widest audience. So, you know, there's, there's a, a diagnostic in Word that lets you do that. And again, I didn't have to send it out to someone to, for them to tell me. I could tell instantaneously um, how well I was doing. So, mm-hmm. you know, in an organization level, you see these in terms of balanced scorecard. But anything that allows someone to know 
um, how well they're doing um, without having to go directly to their supervisor to find out allows them to monitor their own performance. And when you can monitor your own performance, then people generally want to do better. Um, the other ones were about meaning. You know, how do you create meaning in the work? Uh, there's a great story from DeBakey, one of the you know the heart surgeon in Houston, and um, they were interviewing one of the uh, janitors in the operating room, and they said, "So, you know, what, what's your work here?" And he said, "I help save lives." Mm-hmm. And what DeBakey had done with his team was told everybody and worked with everybody about the importance of what they were doing. And what the janitor's job was was to keep the room, the operating theater, germ-free. So, you know, this was no longer someone who just cleaned the room, Mm -hmm. but someone who saw his work as saving lives. Uh, The other is to create more autonomy in the work, and, you know, I think our Best Buy clerk is a great example about that. And the the last... uh, idea is about creating challenge and so um and challenge is an interesting kind of concept but you know if you can get it just right okay a little bit above a person's current skill level then that also uh, creates engagement if there's not enough people become disinterested and if there's too much people give up Well, well, earlier uh, today, Dick, you you mentioned that uh, two thirds of you know change initiatives that are rolled out in organizations don't succeed, and you also talked uh, a little bit about um, you know how to widen the circle of involvement and and doing that in a way that it's you know well thought out and well planned. And I really believe that many organizations could benefit from your guidance and expertise in in leading change initiatives. Could you tell us a little bit about the different ways? that you can support organizations and some of the tools and trainings. I know we had interviewed you earlier. You might want to mention the, the tool that we had talked about the last time that we visited on the program and some of the things that you can do to support people who are you know, trying to initiate some small or medium or large-scale change in their organization. Yeah, so, so we have a whole series. You can take the four conversations that, we, that I talked about about uh, for leaders in engagement. So we have a whole process around that that we call everyday engagement. And so we offer training in that. Uh, you can bring terms of engagement into your organization, and uh, we do workshops on, on the book. And then the, another uh, process that uh, we use called the conference model is a process for large-scale change that uh, uses all the principles that we've talked about um, in this conversation. And so uh, we work in two ways. We train internal groups um, and uh, to, to use this process, or we use um, we, you can have us come in and we'll work with you in that way. And um, so that's you know, um, and these are all very high you know in the conference processes, high engagement change. So those, those are just some of the things uh, that people can use to uh, uh, way we can support people in what, what they're trying to do. And Dick, what, what is the best way for people to connect directly with you? The best way to connect uh, with us is you can um, pick up the phone and call, 847-251-7361. Uh, we have several websites. Uh, one is newtermsofengagement.com. And at NewTermsOfEngagement.com, we have um, some PowerPoints on the book. We have some videos. We have chapter summaries. So there's uh, lots of resources. And then we also have are uh, developing and should be up very shortly a new site called TermsOfEngagementCommunity.com. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's going to be a site where people can come together, uh, share different things that they're using, and it's a way for us to kind of build practice and share practice with others. So uh, termsofengagement.com, new terms of, I'm sorry, there's newtermsofengagement.com, which is a site about the book, and then termsofengagementcommunity.com. Then, of course, there's always the Axelrod Group website. Excellent. Lots of ways to find to find Dick, and I hope that uh, that you will reach out to Dick to uh, help you with your your change initiative. Dick, I've learned a lot from uh, from you and from your your book, and uh, it's always great to have an opportunity to talk with you and visit with you. On behalf of everyone um, who is uh, listening today, I want to thank you for sharing your time and your expertise with us, and uh, in, of course encourage people to um, to uh, purchase your book, uh, which they can do through Bauer Kohler's website and also the website that you just mentioned uh, for the book, which was termsofengagement.com. Is that correct? New terms of engagement. New, new terms of engagement. We'll get it right. New terms <laughs> of engagement.com. New terms of engagement. For the book. So, following uh, our interview today, uh, you are invited to join in this conversation on transformation by joining a group on LinkedIn called Bookends the Discussion. You can pose questions for Dick, who will join us uh, along with your colleagues and peers. To download this podcast or listen to it on your computer, please feel free to visit bookendsbookclub.net, bookendsbookclub.net to download this uh, or to uh, your smartphone or to listen on your computer. You can also uh, download this interview from iTunes as soon as as it's been posted. So once again, Dick, we want to thank you for your your time and um, your wisdom today in this whole arena of changing and uh, our organizations to to make them uh, better places for us all to to work and accomplish the, uh, the lofty goals that we we uh, are all challenged to uh, accomplish. Thanks so much. Thank you. It's been great fun. Bye-bye.